Section 88 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section 88. Mr. Froude's Blue Book. Pall Mall Gazette, April 13, 1889. Blue books are generally dull reading but blue books on Ireland have always been interesting. They form the record of one of the great tragedies of modern Europe. In them England has written down her indictment against herself, and has given to the world the history of her shame. If in the last century she tried to govern Ireland with an insolence that was intensified by race hatred and religious prejudice, she has sought to rule her in this century with a stupidity that is aggravated by good intentions. The last of these blue books, Mr. Froude's heavy novel, has appeared, however, somewhat too late. The society that he describes has long since passed away. An entirely new factor has appeared in the social development of the country, and this factor is the Irish-American and his influence. To mature its powers, to concentrate its actions, to learn the secret of its own strength and of England's weakness, the Celtic intellect has had to cross the Atlantic. At home it had but learned the pathetic weakness of nationality, in a strange land it realized what indomitable forces nationality possesses. What captivity was to the Jews, exile has been to the Irish. America and American influence has educated them. Their first practical leader is an Irish-American. But while Mr. Froude's book has no practical relation to modern Irish politics, and does not offer any solution of the present question, it has a certain historical value. It is a vivid picture of Ireland in the latter half of the 18th century, a picture often false in its lights and exaggerated in its shadows, but a picture nonetheless. Mr. Froude admits the martyrdom of Ireland, but regrets that the martyrdom was not completely carried out. His ground of complaint against the executioner is not his trade, but his bungling. It is the bluntness, not the cruelty of the sword, that he objects to. Resolute government, that shallow shibboleth of those who do not understand how complex a thing the art of government is, is his posthumous panacea for past evils. His hero, Colonel Goring, has the words law and order ever on his lips, meaning by the one the enforcement of unjust legislation, and implying by the other the suppression of every fine national aspiration. That the government should enforce iniquity, and the governed submit to it, seems to Mr. Froude, as it certainly is to many others, the true ideal of political science. Like most penmen, he overrates the power of the sword. Where England has had to struggle, she has been wise— where physical strength has been on her side, as in Ireland, she has been made unwieldy by that strength. Her own strong hands have blinded her. She has had force, but no direction. There is, of course, a story in Mr. Froude's novel. It is not simply a political disquisition. The interest of the tale, such as it is, centers round two men, Colonel Goring and Morty Sullivan, the Cromwellian and the Celt. These men are enemies by race and creed and feeling. The first represents Mr. Froude's cure for Ireland. He is a resolute Englishman, with strong nonconformist tendencies, who plants an industrial colony on the coast of Kerry, and has deep-rooted objections to that illicit trade with France, which in the last century was the sole method by which the Irish people were enabled to pay their rents to their absentee landlords. Colonel Goring bitterly regrets that the penal laws against the Catholics are not rigorously carried out. He is a police-at-any-price man. And this, said Goring scornfully, is what you call governing Ireland, hanging up your law like a scarecrow in the garden, till every sparrow has learnt to make a jest of it. Your Popery Acts, 
Well, you borrowed them from France. The French Catholics did not choose to keep the Huguenots among them, and recalled the Edict of Nantes. As they treated the Huguenots, so you said to all the world that you would treat the Papists. You borrowed from the French the very language of your statute, but they are not afraid to stand by their law, and you are afraid to stand by yours. You let the people laugh at it, and in teaching them to despise one law, you teach them to despise all laws, gods and mans alike. I cannot say how it will end, but I can tell you this, that you are training up a race with the education which you are giving them that will astonish mankind by and by. Mr. Froude's resume of the history of Ireland is not without power, though it is far from being really accurate. The Irish, he tells us, had disowned the facts of life, and the facts of life had proved the strongest. The English, unable to tolerate anarchy so near their shores, consulted the Pope. The Pope gave them leave to interfere, and the Pope had the best of the bargain. For the English brought him in, and the Irish kept him there. England's first settlers were Norman nobles. They became more Irish than the Irish, and England found herself in this difficulty. To abandon Ireland would be discreditable. To rule it as a province would be contrary to English traditions. She then tried to rule by dividing, and failed. The Pope was too strong for her. At last she made her great political discovery. What Ireland wanted was evidently an entirely new population, of the same race and the same religion as her own. The new policy was partly carried out. Elizabeth first, and then James, and then Cromwell, replanted the island, introducing English, Scots, Huguenots, Flemings, Dutch, tens of thousands of families of vigorous and earnest Protestants, who brought their industries along with them. Twice the Irish tried to drive out this new element. They failed. But England had no sooner accomplished her long task than she set herself to work to spoil it again. She destroyed the industries of her colonists by her trade laws. She set the bishops to rob them of their religion. As for the gentry, the purpose for which they had been introduced into Ireland was unfulfilled. They were but alien intruders, who did nothing, who were allowed to do nothing. The time would come when an exasperated population would demand that the land should be given back to them, and England would then, perhaps, throw the gentry to the wolves, in the hope of a momentary peace. But her own turn would follow. She would be face to face with the old problem, either to make a new conquest, or to retire with disgrace. Political disquisitions of this kind, and prophecies after the event, are found all through Mr. Froude's book, and on almost every second page we come across aphorisms on the Irish character, on the teachings of Irish history, and on the nature of England's mode of government. Some of them represent Mr. Froude's own views, others are entirely dramatic and introduced for the purpose of characterization. We append some specimens. As epigrams they are not very felicitous, but they are interesting from some points of view. Irish society grew up in happy recklessness, in security added zest to enjoyment. We Irish must either laugh or cry, and if we went in for crying, we should all hang ourselves. Too close a union with the Irish had produced degeneracy both of character and creed in all the settlements of English. We age quickly in Ireland with the whiskey and the broken heads. The Irish leaders cannot fight. They can make the country ungovernable and keep an English army occupied in watching them. No nation can ever achieve a liberty that will not be a curse to them, except by arms in the field. The Irish are taught from their cradles that English rule is the cause of all their miseries. They were as ill off under their own chiefs, but they would bear from their natural leaders what they will not bear from us, and if we have not made their lot more wretched, we have not made it any better. Patriotism? Yes. Patriotism of the Hibernian order, 
The country has been badly treated and is poor and miserable. That is the patriot's stock in trade. Does he want it mended? Not he. His own occupation would be gone. Irish corruption is the twin brother of Irish eloquence. England will not let us break the heads of our scoundrels. She will not break them herself. We are a free country and must take the consequences. The functions of the Anglo-Irish government were to do what ought not to be done and to leave undone what ought to be done. The Irish race have always been noisy, useless, and ineffectual. They have produced nothing, they have done nothing, which it is possible to admire. What they are, that they have always been, and the only hope for them is that their ridiculous Irish nationality should be buried and forgotten. The Irish are the best actors in the world. Order isn't exotic in Ireland. It has been imported from England, but it will not grow. It suits neither soil nor climate. If the English wanted order in Ireland, they should have left none of us alive. When ruling powers are unjust, nature reasserts her rights. Even anarchy has its advantages. Nature keeps an accurate account. The longer a bill is left unpaid, the heavier the accumulation of interest. You cannot live in Ireland without breaking laws on one side or another. Pecca for tighter, therefore as, Luther said. The animal spirits of the Irish remained when all else was gone, and if there was no purpose in their lives, they could, at least, enjoy themselves. The Irish peasants can make the country hot for the Protestant gentlemen, but that is all they are fit for. As we said before, if Mr. Froude intended his book to help the Tory government to solve the Irish question, he has entirely missed his aim. The Ireland of which he writes has disappeared. As a record, however, of the incapacity of a Teutonic to rule a Celtic people against their own wish, his book is not without value. It is dull, but dull books are very popular at present, and as people have grown a little tired of talking about Robert Ellesmere, they will probably take to discussing the two chiefs of Dunboy. There are some who will welcome with delight the idea of solving the Irish question by doing away with the Irish people. There are others who will remember that Ireland has extended her boundaries, and that we have now to reckon with her not merely in the old world, but in the new. The Two Chiefs of Dunboy, or An Irish Romance of the Last Century, by J. A. Froude, Longmans, Green, and Company. End of section 88